Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Ferguson, and welcome to the Compliance Insider Podcast, brought to you by Compliance Systems. The Compliance Insider brings you discussions about industry developments that impact your financial institution, with expert guests and analysis to help you navigate change and evolve your business. Please note, this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only, and should not be considered legal advice. Because it is recorded, it may not reflect the most current legal developments after its recorded date. The opinions expressed are the opinions of the authors and may not reflect the opinions of compliance systems. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Compliance Insider Podcast. In this episode, we'll discuss the CFPB's final rule on Section 1071, including some notable differences between the proposed and final rule, impacts to financial institutions and their customers or members, and effective dates. Today, we'll be speaking with Stephen Vandelier and Bill Franks, both attorneys with the Compliance Systems product teams who help manage our lending solution. Stephen and Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Amy. Thanks. Great to be here. So you both joined us back in episode two to talk about the proposed rule, but for those listeners who didn't catch that one, I want to start with a little refresher on Section 1071 and what it's intended to accomplish. Can you take us through some of the history of 1071? Uh, Sure, Amy. Yes. So to recap, back in 2010, Congress enacted the Dodd-Frank Act. And that was to promote the financial stability of the United States by improving accountability and transparency in the financial system. Section 1071 amended the Equal Credit Opportunity Act and added another subpart to that act to require financial institutions to collect and report data on credit applications for women-owned, minority-owned, and small businesses to the CFPB. That data was to include the type and purpose of the loan, census tract the applicant's principal place of business, and race, sex, and ethnicity of the principal owners of the business. So Section 1071 has two statutory purposes. One is to facilitate the enforcement of fair lending laws and to enable the identification of business and community development needs and opportunities for women-owned and minority-owned and small businesses. So you might be wondering why we're talking about this now, uh, about 13 years later after the Dodd-Frank Act was passed. And the reason is that at the time the Dodd-Frank Act was passed, with respect to Section 1071, uh, the CFPB made an opinion that they were not obligated to enforce Section 1071 until they promulgated a rule. And until 2019, uh, there was no effort on their part to do that until they were uh, brought into a lawsuit by a, a consumer protection group in California. And that consumer protection group alleged that they were unlawfully uh, withholding and unreasonably delaying enforcement of the rule. So that ultimately led to a settlement between the CFPB and the Consumer Advocacy Group. And the CFPB then reacted and held a symposium and issued a Small Business Regulatory Fairness Enforcement Act report. And the outcome of that was the proposed rule in September 2021. The timeframe to respond to the proposed rule expired in January of 2022. And the CFPB still had not promulgated a final rule yet. Shortly after that, though, they reached a settlement with the court to issue the final rule no later than March of 2023. And so March 30, 2023, here we are. They have now issued the final rule. Okay. So, wow, it sounds like the financial industry has had quite a bit of time to review the proposed rule and kind of suss out what to expect and how best to prepare for it. So what have you been doing to prepare in anticipation of the final rule? So we've been watching this for a while and We, as well as others, have had quite a bit of time to prepare for it based on what was in the proposed rule. Now that we have the final rule, you know, we're going to be taking a deeper dive into, you know, all 888 pages of the rule and its various 
commentary and um, additional guidance and trying to figure out some of these uh, key issues, making sure the definitions are consistent between the two, what financial institutions are covered, what kind of data points need to be collected, things like that. From a compliance systems perspective, we've been keeping a close eye on feedback from clients and partners to determine how best to build out the solutions. We've engaged with our partners to find the best solutions and work with our clients on making sure that their needs are being met. So much of the proposed rule was theoretical until now, so now it's really time to dig in and determine how, how do we best support our clients and, uh, and our partners in complying with the rule. Absolutely. And this is such a, a big change um, for many lenders who were not used to having to report this sort of data until now. And just in, up to a few weeks ago, before the final rule was published, credit unions, for example, weren't even sure if they would still be subject to this rule. That's a lot of information to digest uh, now that we have the final rule. Uh, can we talk a little bit about how financial institutions will know whether or not the reporting requirements will apply to them? Um, is there some sort of criteria that needs to be met? Uh, yes, Amy. So uh, the final rule provides a definition for what is a covered financial institution. And the CFPB has followed closely with the proposed rule in this respect in making the covered institutions dependent just on the number of loan originations or covered loan originations they've done in the past two years. And so in the proposed rule, uh, it was 25 loan originations. But in the final rule now, it is 100 covered transactions in the preceding two years and you would be a covered financial institution. And importantly to note, the financial institution means any lender, any type of lender engaged in financial lending activity. That includes savings banks, credit unions, mortgage lenders, and uh, the, the final rule uh, does not exclude any type of lender. Yeah, I mean, I think in addition to the definition of a covered financial institution, I think it's really important to understand some of the other key definitions that were detailed in the final rule. The primary ones that uh, people will need to keep an eye out for would include what is a covered credit transaction, what constitutes a small business, and what constitutes a covered application. All right, so that makes sense. But um, you know, what specifically will need to be reported by those financial institutions who qualify? Is there anything that was included in the final rule that maybe wasn't included in the proposed rule? Absolutely. So take, for example, the definition of small business. The final rule has really clarified that for everybody. They've defined it to mean a business with gross annual revenue uh, for its preceding year of $5 million or less. And this would exclude governmental agencies and nonprofits. And another key definition would be covered application. And so this would mean any oral or written application for business credit that's made in accordance with the financial institution's procedures. But covered application does not include reevaluation, extensions for credit, or renewals. And the commentary has provided some clarification that this also does not apply to firm offers for credit, certain solicitations, or credit line increases that happen automatically without the borrower's request. And on the topic of exceptions, the final rule also clarified what does not constitute a covered credit transaction. So that's things like trade credit, insurance premium financing, public utilities credit, securities credit, incidental credit. I think more importantly, the final rule clarifies that HMDA reportable transactions do not constitute a covered credit transaction. Well, that was a lot of information that we just covered. What specifically is going to need to be reported by covered financial institutions who qualify? In the final rule, a covered financial institution must collect and report various data points 
for small businesses. Some were required by the statute specifically and others required as mandatory data points that the CFPB believes will further its purposes. Some of the data points are collected about the application, like application number, date, action taken. Others are about the applicant, uh, how long they've been in business, gross annual revenue, how many employees they have. And then there are demographic data points too, which focus on the business's principal owners, which is generally defined as somebody who owns 25% or more of the applicant's small business. But those data points would include whether the business's principal owners are women, uh, minorities, or LGBTQI+. And interestingly, the LGBTQI+, was not initially a reporting category in the proposed rule. That was something that was added in the final rule in response to some of the comments that were provided to the CFPB. Yes, and so when it comes to the the data points, um, you can kind of categorize them into three different buckets. You know, data points that the institution is going to collect about the application itself, information about the applicant's business, as Bill was describing, and then this demographic data as well. And to help with the demographic data, the CFPB has provided a sample data collection form in the final rule that institutions can use, which helps to provide the safe harbor disclosures and also helps with the selections about the demographic information. So not only do they not have to use that visual observation confirmation to the extent that they didn't provide it in the application, they are actively prohibited from inferring or collecting or reporting those data points based on visual observation, surname, or any other basis other than the applicant's own response. And I would add, too, that in a scenario where the applicant selects some but not all of the demographic information or multiple demographic information, such as multiple sex or multiple genders, the institution only reports what has been selected by the applicant. Well, that actually leads me to my next question, which is what kind of guidance did the CFPB provide uh, when it comes to reporting that information? So financial institutions have a filing instructions guide that the CFPB has published on their website, and they'll look to update that every year. That will spell out all of the technical requirements, the formatting, any other additional information that must be submitted along with the data points that they collect. In addition to that, the CFPB has made it clear that they expect institutions to maintain procedures to collect such data at a time and in a manner that are reasonably designed to obtain a response. Speaking of policy guidance, on the same day that the final rule was issued, the CFPB issued some policy guidance where it highlighted its concerns over discouragement of the reporting of demographic information. In there, it says that the Bureau plans to focus some of its supervisory and enforcement efforts in connection with the small business rule on potential discouragement using the institution's self-reported demographic information. Basically, if it's looking like there are some low response rates, the Bureau may infer that there's some discouragement going on there. So it's really something that institutions needs to be, uh, need to be aware of and cognizant of going forward. And let me just follow up on what Bill said there, too, because what's really important is as the uh, guidance relates to a safe harbor for the initial collection and data reporting, the CFPB has said that the first year after covered financial institutions are required to report, that their oversight and audits would be limited to uh, just assisting the financial institutions uh, in ensuring that they're making those good faith efforts to report correctly. But this doesn't apply in the case of 
a finding of discouragement on demographic data points. What about next steps? The financial industry has had a long time to speculate, but now we have the final rule. When do covered financial institutions need to start reporting their data? And really, what are some things that financial institutions should start doing to prepare for that? Well, thankfully on that, there is a little bit of runway here for most uh, financial institutions. When the covered financial institution needs to start reporting is based primarily on the amount of covered originations that were completed in 2022 and 2023. For those institutions that had at least 2,500 in each of 2022 and 2023, then they must begin collecting data on October 1st, 2024, with their first reporting being done on June 1st, 2025. Now, if a, an institution has at least 500 in both 2022 and 23, and at least 124, then they would begin collecting data on April 1st of 25, and then the deadline to uh, report their first year data would be June 1st of 26. And then finally, if the institution has at least 100 covered originations in both 22 and 23, and then at least 100 in both 24 and 25, then they start collecting in January 1, 2026, and reporting on June 1st, 2027. So absolutely. So in addition to understanding whether or not they are a covered institution and understanding when they'll be required to report, some of the other considerations could be how their technical software needs to be updated so that they can prepare to report. The filing instruction guide provides that information to them on how to do it, but they should be considering things like the different channels of their commercial lending business. If they use different partners for different channels and what that technology looks like and how that data needs to be aggregated and then compiled and then sent in a, in a consistent manner to the CFPB. Institutions are also going to want to think about how they're going to train their staff to collect the data. And when it comes to the firewall requirement, how to keep certain types of the demographic data away from those employees that may be involved in the decision making of the credit application. Well, that's all we have time for today, but lots of really interesting information to think about. Thank you so much, Bill and Stephen, for joining us. And maybe we'll hear from you again as we come up with some more information that we want to share. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Compliance Insider, a podcast about industry developments impacting banks and credit unions. Thank you for choosing this episode. Please follow Compliance Systems on LinkedIn and Twitter for more news.